Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, tonight we are going to be in first, uh, Second Kings. Sorry, Second Kings. We're picking up in chapter 8, verse 7. And we're going to kind of... Uh, blow the picture back up a little bit. We've been slowed down for at least three weeks looking at Elijah and Elisha specifically and their ministries under uh, King Ahab and all of that came to an end last week and Elisha now carries on the mantle of Elijah under the the new king. So what we're going to see a lot of this week is uh, it's kind of a medium view, okay? If the, if, the, if the couple chapters there were the bird's eye view and we were just zooming through those kings uh, and then the last two couple weeks with Elijah and Elisha were really zoomed in uh, onto the trees in the forest as it were, we're going to zoom out just a little, not uh, fast forwarding through so many kings, but also looking at several kings in a row, un- really still into the ministry of Elisha. Um, tonight, though, we're going to see really the topic of judgment. Judgment comes what Elijah foretold to Ahab about his house and the destruction of his house will come to pass uh, as will several several other judgments from God and we will see foreshadowings of judgments to come so remember as you're reading if you're using the study guide and you're reading pay close attention to the the sections and the chapters they draw your attention to which is kind of what we're doing but look for patterns. You see repeated phrases, repeated words. Uh, you know, here's a good thing. Even if you ever see a phrase or a sentence that sounds like something else in the Bible, you know, if it just rings a bell, like, oh, that's familiar. I don't, I don't know from where. Circle it and underline it. Go back and, and research that later because it, it could have some carryover. One of the things I pointed out, I think, last week was uh, she conceived and bore a son. You know, that's a phrase that you see throughout the Old Testament that really comes to bear in the New Testament with Mary, with Elizabeth, and we see the fulfillment of that promise of sons uh, through Jesus and John the Baptist. So always look for rhythms, patterns, repetitions, echoes, and and look for those as they come up in different places of Scripture. Uh, The themes this week, judgment, but not judgment without hope. God leaves his people hope. We're going to see God bringing the judgment that he promised to Ahab's house, Ahab's family. Now, Ahab has died, but if you remember, when the Lord called him on his sin, when he robbed Naboth of his vineyard and killed him, uh, Ahab repented, and God spared him this destruction in his lifetime. But he still promised that destruction would come, so we will see that judgment come to Ahab's house this week. Uh, God brings judgment not just to Israel, not, to ch- not just to his people and his people's kings, but to other nations, Gentile nations. And ultimately, we see God bring reform and revival to the southern kingdom of Judah as he preserves his remnant there, his people, and the promise that he made to King David. So here's the big picture, and if you have the study guide, every week this, this central first quote just comes from 
I think the first page of every study in the study guide. God fulfills his promises to judge evil while raising up those who will bring reformation and renewal to his people. God will always judge and discipline his people. God will always root out sin. God will always root out corruption. It may take time. It might not be on our timetable. We'll see that this week, but God is always building his church. God is always purifying his church, and that started even back here with the old covenant people of God, Israel. You know, we, we look at the medieval era leading up to the Reformation, and um, this is Reformation Month. We're not going to celebrate Reformation Month every year because it might get tedious every year to do the same thing over and over again. We'll do Reformation Sunday at the end of October. Uh, but, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, none of the reformers, um, none of the reformers pictured God's church as dead. They didn't, they didn't think God needed a new church. They thought the church needed reformation. That's why we call it reformation and not just a, a rebirth or a whole new thing altogether. They wanted to rescue the church. So God is always in the process judging and disciplining, yes, but also reviving and renewing and reforming his people in conformance with his word and the truth. All right, so as we go from uh, the, that last little episode we have with the Shunammite woman who received her land back, we talked about God caring for even these Gentile people. We come into chapter 8, verse 7. We return our focus to Ben-Hadad, the king of Samaria. And it says in verse 7 that this king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, sorry, of Syria, was sick. And so what we're going to see unfold in these coming verses is the judgment that was promised earlier. In fact, if you want to look at that, 1 Kings chapter 19, you might want to put a marker there because we're going to go back to several verses in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 15, the Lord said to Elijah, talking to Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of, the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Now, if you remember, we read through the rest of 1 Kings, and if you read through the rest of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, what's happened to Elijah by now? He didn't die, but he was translated into heaven on the chariots of fire, uh, never having anointed Hazael as king over Syria, or as he says, Jehu as king, or sorry, Syria, or Jehu king over Israel. It didn't happen. The Lord took him. So what do we make of that promise? Well, we're going to see how these promises come to bear now under the ministry of Elisha and through this man, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is murdered by Hazael, who then takes the throne. Now, let's just read the story here. As he's sick, verse 8, the king says to Hazael, we don't know who Hazael is, where he came from, if he's a servant, if he's a nobleman, doesn't seem to be of any uh, well repute or anything. He's just there with the king, probably a servant of the king. The king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God, that's Elisha, to inquire of Yahweh, the Lord, through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael, I'm the king. You go to Elisha, the prophet, and ask him if I'm going to recover from this sickness. So Hazael, verse 9, went to meet him. Elisha took a present with him, all kinds of good of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? Verse 10, and Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Now, I don't know what your translation reads, but you might have a footnote, or your translation might actually interpret it this way, uh, that Elisha tells him, go say, you shall not recover. 
And there's lots of disagreement uh, from commentators and theologians and scholars over what exactly should it be. Because no matter how you translate it, there are some problems that come up in the story. So did Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, tell this man to go lie to the king? Go tell him he will recover. Oh, but he's not going to recover. He's going to die. Is that what happened? Maybe. And we could get into all sorts of discussions about the ethics of his lie. Is he lulling him into a false sense of security? Is it part of the judgment that God is bringing? Or does he tell him straight up, no, go tell him he will not recover? In which case, that seems like a, a you know, why, why go tell, say that to your king? <laughs> and so there's lots of interpretive challenges here. Whatever happens, it seems as if Elisha, to me, it seems as if Elisha is telling him to tell the king you shall certainly recover to protect Hazael and to protect the kingdom because if you remember, Hazael is the one that the Lord commanded to be anointed as king over Syria. And so maybe the Lord, through this deception on Elisha's part, is uh, protecting Hazael. And uh, again, all kinds of theological, ethical discussions we could have about God and what he's commanding him to do and what the prophet is being commanded to do. That just seems like the most uh, face value interpretation of this passage. So verse 11, after he hears this, he fixed uh, his gaze and stared at him. Now, there's no telling who was staring at who or whose gaze was fixed on who, but he's got the two men, Elisha and Hazael, there after he says, go tell him he will recover, but he's going to die, and their their gazes are fixed on each other. And it says they stared until he was embarrassed. (laughs) And the man of God that is Elisha begins to weep. And Hazael says, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will, set on their for- you will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And in those remaining verses of that section, Hazael goes, gives the king the report, you will not recover or you will recover, however you want to see it but then places a cloth over Ben-Hadad's face, presumably suffocates him and murders him. And Hazael, therefore, in verse 15, becomes king over Syria. This man who we don't know anything about, where he came from, except that God promised Elijah in 1 Kings 19.15, Hazael will be king over Syria. Jehoram, there in verse 16 And that is not to be confused with Joram, who is king in Israel. And now we have to say another caveat, that Jehoram and Joram are technically the same name. And sometimes the author is going to say Joram when he means Jehoram, and Jehoram when he means Joram. So that's not confusing at all, is it? You can go go trace that out later. This is Jehoram, verse 16, not Joram, the son of Ahab, the brother of Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, but Joram, the son of Uh, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who is currently king of Judah. Jehoshaphat dies, and this son of his, Jehoram, becomes king of Judah. He just happens to reign at the same time as Joram, king of Israel, who happens to share the same name. So we're going to see sometimes the author helps us by differentiating Joram and Israel 
Jehoram and Judah. Sometimes he's going to interchange, and then sometimes we're not going to know who he's talking about. So we'll get into the family tree later and uh, try, to, try to map some of that stuff out. But we see some patterns begin to reemerge here as we zoom out of the story again. So as we kind of move back into the reg- regular rhythms and patterns of these books, we're going to see some of the, the old patterns come back. And if you look at verse 18, we see one of those patterns. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who is now king of Judah, the southern kingdom, it says, verse 18, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. And now in verse 23 and 24, now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are they not. Now, let's see, he used Joram instead of Jehoram. But he's talking about Jehoram, the king of Judah. Are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram, Jehoram, king of Judah, not Joram, king of Israel, slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And here's another one. We now have Ahaziah, king of Judah, not to be confused with Ahaziah, son son of Ahab, king of Israel. So this is all fun, isn't it? So many repeated names. I was going back and forth myself trying to make sure I had the storyline straight again today. But we see these patterns begin to reemerge, don't we? The report card, he did what was evil. He reigned this many years and then he died. And it's important that the author begins to pick back up this pattern because we're being reminded of where this is all going. We have a promised king. We have a promised kingdom. This whole thing is built on a promise to David that one of his sons will sit on his throne forever to reign in righteousness and justice forever. In fact, the author reminds us of this in verse 19, doesn't he? He reminds us that the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, although he disciplined her and judged her. Why? For the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. The author, again, is binding us and anchoring us down to that central promise that the whole thing is about. This promise to David that one of his sons will reign forever. So even in this judgment, and even as we see this repeated pattern of judgment and death, and this is not, this is not the king you're looking for, remember? We pick back up with the central promise, but there is a king coming. There is a king coming who will reign as a lamp, it says, forever. We come to the next section, um, chapters 9 through 10. We see the introduction of another king, King Jehu. King Jehu, again, was who the Lord promised in 1 Kings 19, 16. He told Elijah, I want you to go anoint Hazael, king of Syria. I want you to anoint Elisha to be your successor. And I want you to anoint this man Jehu as king of Judah. Elijah was able to anoint Elisha, throw his mantle upon him as he was taken up into heaven. Elisha is the clear successor to Elijah, but he didn't anoint Hazael and he didn't anoint Jehu. Yet we've seen how God has fulfilled his promise to make Hazael king of Syria. And now we're going to see how God is faithful to bring Jehu to the throne of Judah. 
So it's not Elisha who does it, but Elijah, but Elisha who sends a prophet to anoint Jehu. In chapter 9, verse 3, Elisha sends one of the sons of the prophets to Jehu and says in verse 3, Take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king forever, or king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Now we begin to see specific details uh, that we did not see earlier as the prophet goes to anoint Jehu king of Israel. Look at verse 6. So he arose and went into the house, that's the prophet into Jehu, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab from every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the son of Bashah, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Now I want you to look back, if you can, 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21, and let's see where we first heard this prophecy. 1 Kings 21, sorry, that should say verses 21 through 24. This is after Ahab had stolen Naboth's vineyard and had Ahab, or Naboth stoned, killed, to, in order to take his vineyard. The Lord responds with this judgment. 1 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 21. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashah, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. So if you compare these two prophecies, what Elijah says to Ahab in response to his murder of Naboth, and what this young prophet from Elisha says to Ahab, you see something very similar, right? I'm going to cut off every male from the house of Ahab. I'm going to kill all of Ahab's relatives. I'm going to kill Jezebel for her sin and idolatry. You see some of those same things repeated. But we see some extra details too. Because now we have the prophet talking to the one who is going to do it. Thus says the Lord God, I've anointed you as king over the people of the Lord Israel. This is 2 Kings 9, 7. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab. So what was prophesied back then, same words, is being prophesied once again here, the same words. But we have the added benefit and the detail that now we see the one who is going to do it. Elijah only saw a shadow, but now we see the fulfillment in this new king of Israel, Jehu, whom the Lord has anointed specifically for that purpose, to strike down the house of Ahab and bring this judgment upon him. So the question I think we're left with is, well, why did God delay his judgment to Ahab? Well, for one, he had repented, and so God said, okay, I'm not going to bring this in your lifetime. But now we're a couple generations even later than that. Ahab's been dead 
God could have done this already. Why the delay? Why wait? And unfortunately, (laughs) as God often does in Scripture, we don't have a detailed bullet point list from God as to why he's done what he's done, why there was a delay, why it wasn't Elijah who anointed Jehu, why it wasn't Elijah who anointed Hazael, why the wait, why was Elijah taken and Elisha left, why is it Elisha who anoints Hazael, why do we wait even longer to see this judgment come upon Ahab's house that God promised, and in the end, we need to become more comfortable, I think, as believers, theologians, Bible readers, lay people, preachers, we need to be more comfortable with saying, I don't know. Sometimes it's okay to just say, I don't know. And lots of speculation, lots of commentators have opinions, I'm sure, as to why God waited. In the end, it's okay to just say, I don't know. God is in control. God is sovereign. We're seeing that play out page after page, story after story. If there's anything the author does not want to communicate to us is that God is late or that God has been foiled or God's plan has been messed up. The author is bending over backwards to show us the exact opposite. And really, if you think about it, it's even more amazing now that generations later, the exact prophecy that was spoken by Elijah comes to pass now exactly as he said it would. And so we see God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, God's ownership and rulership, not just of Israel, but over all the nations and all the kings of earth. We can learn that in God's sovereignty, he is absolutely, eternally, and always faithful to fulfill the promises that he's made. Now, that's true, as we talked about last week, from the raising up and the throwing down of kings, all the way down to the sparrow that falls out of the tree or the hairs on your head. God is sovereign and in control of every last single particle in the universe. So we can trust him. He will do what he says he's going to do. It might be in his time. It might be, will be in his way. Will be in his time. It might not be our time. It might not be our way. But God is faithful to accomplish the things he's promised. Whether that's on this large scale or even larger in the created cosmos that we can't even imagine and see down to our very lives and our souls and our own hearts. So we have Joram, the second wicked son now of Ahab, is killed in the lighter parts of chapter 9. We begin to see this promise come to pass that God was going to cut off Ahab's relatives. He was going to destroy his house. And now he begins with the other wicked son of Ahab. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, has already reigned and died. Remember, first part of 2 Kings chapter 1. He's already dead. So this is the other son of Ahab now reigning in his place, brother to the first king Ahaziah, son of Ahab. Joram is now killed. Now, the story of the the murder of Joram, I think, is interesting, starting in chapter 9, verse uh, 14. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, he raises up an army. He goes marching on Joram. Down in verse 17, Uh, Joram and the watchman, uh, it says, I see a company. So we see some sort of movement, some troops. Uh, uh, Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and say, is it peace? And then again, he says in verse 18, is it peace? 
And then in verse 19 again, is it peace? We see the, and you almost, you know, when you promise your child a punishment or, um, you know, one of my favorites is when someone gets the pastor text that says, can you come to my office? We need to talk. And I did this just yesterday to someone and I terrified them because then my phone died for, or that was, it was away from me and I couldn't answer their questions. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to chat about something coming up and, and they thought they were in trouble for some reason. And so that's that thing, right? You know you got something coming, but you don't know what it is, and it drives you crazy. I think Joram knew what was coming. And so three times he wants to know, is it peace? Are we okay? Everything good? Are we okay? But then when he's finally face-to-face with Jehu, Joram says to Jehu, verse 22, is it peace, Jehu? There's the fourth time. Now listen to Jehu's response. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made his pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So Joram, the second son of Ahab, is killed by Jehu, the king of Israel. Joram's body is thrown on the ground that belonged to none other than Naboth, poor man who Ahab and Jezebel had murdered to take his vineyard. Again, fulfilling this promise from the Lord. This blood will be avenged right here on this very spot of land. Now this other Ahaziah that we're introduced to here is Ahaziah the king of Judah. Okay, remember, not Ahaziah, son of Ahab, king of Israel, 2 Kings chapter 1, but the other Ahaziah, now the king of Judah. Verse 27, when Ahaziah the king of Judah, now just so you understand, this Ahaziah king of Judah is the son of Jehoram, the other Jehoram king of Judah, and his wife, Athelah, or Athaliah, as I guess we would say Athaliah, who is either the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel or the granddaughter of Omri. I'm sorry. She is either the daughter of Omri or the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Omri being the father of Ahab. So she's in that family lineage somewhere. She married the king of Judah, Jehoram, and they had this son, Ahaziah, who is now king of Judah, who has now died. That's going to come up later. So map all that out. Go find the charts. We'll talk about it later. Later in chapter 9, Jezebel, Ahab's wicked wife, is killed also. Now, these Old Testament stories, uh, the New Testament is full of some of this stuff too. Uh, but I love the interchange, the exchanges that happen here in the Old Testament. Words from the Lord, words between these kings. Is it peace, Jehu? I mean, literally, no, it's not peace. How can there be peace when the whorings and the sorceries of your mother? I mean, can you imagine this? this conversation, and then he tries to run away and he gets shot in the back with an arrow and then Ahaziah is killed also. I mean, this is some action-packed, 
seedy, seedy, that's, that's the wrong word, isn't it? It's violent. Yeah, let's just leave it at violent. <laughs> it's bloody, it's violent, it's shocking. Uh, but these, these are the revelations of God's judgments and God's justice in the Old Testament. The same thing happens here in verse 30 with the death of Jezebel. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out over the window. Why she's doing this, I don't know. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. Now see, oh, I thought we weren't supposed to bury her. She's going to fall. She's going to die within the gates of the city. The dogs are going to eat her. She's not going to get buried. But he says, bury her. But before they're able to, verse 35, they found no more of her because she'd been trampled by the horses. And all that was left was the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, oh, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the, Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. The Lord, to this violent, bloody degree, sees that his promises and his prophecies are accomplished so that even down to that detail of her not being buried and being eaten by dogs is accomplished. Why? Because there was nothing left to bury. A skull, her feet, and her palms. And the dogs surely had their way with the rest of her. What do we learn about God's character here? Because this can be jarring, I think. So many, sadly, so many churches and um, denominations, whatever, pastors, are, are consigned to give their congregations their, the Sunday school stories for the rest of their lives. And so many people, Christians, can die never having gone through any books of the Old Testament and never reading these things and coming face to face with things. And so sometimes when we do, it can be shocking for us because we, we're, we, we know Jesus and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and God so loved the world, and all these things that we say, and we become so accustomed to this version of God that we've made in our heads, talked about this a couple weeks ago with We Believe in God, that we read something like this, and it seems completely contrary to what we know about God. Yet every time we turn the pages of the Old Testament, especially here in these books, we see God bringing justice and judgment and condemnation and wrath and anger, violence and bloody ways down on these people who have rebelled against him. And it can be shocking, but we do see something about God's character here. At the very least, we see that he is absolutely faithful to do what he says. We see that he is holy, that he is pure, that he is righteous, that he will punish sin, and no one will escape his judgment who does not repent and turn to him again, and that God will do every last word that he said he would do. So it might be shocking to you. It might jar us a little bit, 
Again, I would encourage you to go read the book of Revelation and see how the end is going to play out with God's judgment. And yes, even the Lord Jesus who comes in judgment. I think it's so interesting that in the book of Revelation, when the people begin to try to run away from God, whatever the picture is, the mountains are falling and the stars are falling and the seas are turning to blood, these, these big pictures of God's judgment on the earth, the people try to run and hide themselves under the rocks. And who does it say they're hiding from? They're, running, they're hiding from God and from the Lamb. They're not just running from God, the mean God, and Jesus is the nice one. They're running from both because both are bringing judgment down upon the earth. So we don't see a change in the New Testament. What we see is mercy and grace provided in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. No change in God's character. He is wrath. He is hate towards sin. He is judgment. He is anger. He is holiness. But he's also grace and love and mercy. In all of it, though, God will be just. And so a little equation for you to think about that we're going to solve later. Hopefully you already know the answer. How is God going to be just to us sinners, but also forgive us of our sins? Nothing gets past God. He can't just wink at sin and let it go. So how do we escape the same fate that Ahab and Joram and Jezebel faced? How can we hope to escape that fate if God is absolutely just and will give us exactly what we deserve? Come back to that later. Jehu fulfills Elijah's prophecy by bringing an end to Ahab's house. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 Jehu finds out, seeks out, and slaughters 70 of Ahab's sons in Samaria. Now, we talk about these kings in the Old Testament. You have to remember there are wives, there are concubines, and so there are multiple sons, multiple children by lots of different women. So this isn't just you know him and his one wife that had 70 children. Now, I guess it's not beyond beyond the pale in the Old Testament, but uh, these are Ahab's 70 sons through multiple women, probably, and he wasn't the most chaste and righteous king. We know that. In chapter 10, verse 14, he also seeks out the uh, relatives of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and he kills them, verse 14. Not Ahaziah, king, uh, the son of Ahab, which is interesting because that seems like that's the path we're following. Ahab had those two sons, Joram and Ahaziah, Jehu is chasing after the relatives of Ahab to, to, to strike them down and to slaughter them. He kills 70 of Ahab's sons. And so we think that it's going to be Ahaziah, son of Ahab, that he goes after. But this is the other Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and he kills his relatives. Uh, and then in verse 17, whatever was left of Ahab's relatives in Samaria, chapter 10, verse 17, <coughs> are killed. He struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out again according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah down to the last person God fulfills his judgment call on Ahab and now his house and any lineage these are these are the males by the way probably mostly the males so there's no heirs uh, that they're cut off there is no more Ahab's house no more Ahab's lineage And so God fulfills this prophecy that he gave to Elijah. In verses 18 through 28 of chapter 10, though, we kind of see the climax. And it's not a king. 
and it's not a king's sons, it's not a king's relatives. But Jehu goes and slaughters all the remaining prophets of Baal. You can fix my English. All the prophets of Baal are killed. <laughs> they are, they're killed. Not kills. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see the order of things here. And we should probably attach some significance to it, not to make too big of a deal. But what do we see here? Are we going from the most important to the least important? Are, are, we, are we starting with the kings and his family and target number one and going down to the bottom, the ones that we, we can clean up after, the prophets of Baal? Or are we going in ascending order from these rulers and these wicked kings to the cause of the problem, which are these false prophets and their idolatry, the worship of Baal. I think an argument can be made either way, but rather than see it as, you know, from least important to most important or most important to least important, let's see it this way, that we're getting to the root of the problem, that we're going from the fruit of the problem <laughs> to the root of the problem. That'll preach. The, from the fruit of the problem, which is Ahab and his wickedness with Jezebel and this Baal worship, take care of all that, now let's go down and let's take care of where it's all coming from, which are these false priests and these false prophets. And so in verses 18 through 28, Jehu assembles all the people. He kind of dupes the prophets of Baal to coming together for an assembly. And then he says in verse 25, Go in and strike them down and let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room to the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. What does your translation say? Toilet, bathroom, refuse, that what it says? Yeah, all nice words. They made it a toilet. It's a big urinal. Okay. They, <laughs> they made, they made the, uh, the tower of Baal that had been erected there in the temple of Baal. They burned the whole thing, destroyed the whole thing, and made sure that everybody would remember from this day on to this day that this is worth nothing more than a place to be used to go to the bathroom. So, seems like Jehu's a pretty good king. He did exactly what the Lord called him to do cut down all the house remaining of Ahab, even fixed up some of the worship, cast down these altars, brought out the pillar, turned it into a bathroom, burned down the temple of Baal. But then in verse 31, and here's this pattern again, repeated pattern, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And down in verse 34, the rest of the pattern. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did, with all his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. So every time we begin to think this is it, this is what we've been waiting on. Here's the righteous king bringing justice, cleaning up the worship, wiping out all the remnants of Ahab. This has got to be the one. Everybody else has been so bad that relatively speaking, this one's actually the best one yet. Maybe this is the one, but he's not. And then he dies. And so we're left with that repeated question. What of God's promise? More than that, in verses 32 through 33, we begin to see signs of coming judgment. In those days, verse 32, it says, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Little by little, portions of the northern kingdom 
are being kind of chewed away. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aruer, which is the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So we have little bits, you can see like a big cookie that is Israel up there, and just little bites, these little rats from all the surrounding nations, taking out chunk by chunk by chunk by chunk. And no, it's not all of Israel, it's not complete destruction, but you have, again, you have this detail there for a reason, foreshadowing problems that are coming, foreshadowing judgment that is coming. The Lord began, the Lord began. Not just these foreign kings, not just these wicked nations, not just these armies that are doing the actual attacking of Israel, but who's doing it through them? The Lord. The Lord is bringing judgment on Israel, piece by piece by piece. And we'd be tempted to despair and think, well, this is the bottom of the barrel. This is the end of the story. We've reached the bottom of the spiral. Not quite yet. Because God gives a glimmer of hope through this last king we're going to talk about tonight, Joash. Name is Jehoash, but it can also be shortened to just Joash. Where we pick up, though, in verses 1 through 3 is the reintroduction of an old character. It's like one of those Star Wars sequels where, oh, there's a son or a granddaughter that you know about for the first six movies but here they are, and they're actually quite important. That's what happens here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, with the reintroduction of Athaliah, maybe the daughter of Jezebel, also maybe the daughter of Omri. So that would have been maybe a sister to Ahab by either the same woman or another woman. Either way, some relative of Ahab, probably the daughter of Jezebel. Most people agree the daughter of Jezebel. She begins in chapter or verses 1 through 3 to murder the remaining family of the royal lineage in Judah. So if you remember, Athaliah was married to Jehoram, king of Judah. So there's this marriage between Athaliah, daughter of Jezebel and Ahab in Israel, now married to the king of Judah, Jehoram, their son Ahaziah, And two chapters earlier, he had just been killed in the same battle as Joram, okay? She hears in verse 1 that her son was dead, and she arose and destroyed the rest. She's not from Judah. She doesn't care about them. This was a political marriage from the beginning, and so she wants power. She wants to usurp the throne for herself, so she marries, marries, she destroys the rest of the royal family there in Judah, Except one little boy named Jehoash. This gal named Jehosheba. These are fun names, right? Wish these names would come back. These are homeschool names. Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, hid, hid Jeho. Sorry, Jonah. <laughs> oh my! You need Jedediah. Like all the Duggars' names, said it died, whatever. Look at, <laughs> look at your little family tree there, and this is what I had to do for myself to try to figure out what, what's going on here, because as you read, it's going to be confusing. Um, Ahab and Jezebel have, it seems, they had three children, maybe together, 
maybe from different marriages, maybe from different people altogether, but we're just going to say from Ahab and Jezebel, regardless of how it went down, they had Joram and Ahaziah. We've already read about them. Jehoram had the arrow in the back. He's dead. Ahaziah died after him. And now Athaliah, maybe? Is she their daughter? Is she Jezebel's daughter? Or is she the granddaughter of Omri? Uh, or the daughter of Omri, so a sister or something of, of Ahab. Jehoshaphat, remember him, king of Judah? His son Jehoram, we just read about him. Uh, he was married to Athaliah. They had at least the son together, Ahaziah. Now the text is confusing as to whether Jehoshaphat is the daughter of that Jehoram slash Joram, or is she the daughter of the other Joram slash Jehoram? Either way, she doesn't like what's going on with Athaliah, who has usurped the throne and tried to wipe out this lineage of Judah. So she hides Jehoash, otherwise known as Joash. She hides him in verse 3. Um, and he remained six years hidden in the temple in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, just, you know, again, there's one of those patterns. Where else in Scripture do we see some wicked ruler trying to wipe out an entire group of people and the hero of the story just so happens to be hidden and saved? Anybody? Moses. Number one comes to mind. Moses, Pharaoh trying to wipe out all the male children of Israel so they stop growing, stop procreating, and don't raise up an army against him. So he wipes out all the male children except Moses, who is hidden in the basket put down the Nile. Remember the story. Is there another one you can think of? Jesus. Who said that? Good Sunday school answer. And you're exactly right. You remember the story of Jesus? How'd it go? Herod wants to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, to, or in Judea, two years and under. Right? But the Lord warns Joseph in a dream. He warns the, the wise men, and they depart from another way. They don't tell Herod where he is. He tells Joseph, take the child and go to Egypt, and they stay there until uh, Herod is dead. So in a similar way, and not for no reason, this young king Jehoash is hidden from a wicked ruler who wants to stamp out God's lineage, seed of serpent, seed of woman, it's all over here, okay? And the serpent wants to stamp out the seed of the woman, the promised seed, but he can't, God hides him, nevertheless, in the house of the Lord, no less than in the house of the Lord, and they stay there six years while Athaliah reigned over the land, um, illegitimately reigned over the land. But, Jehoash is proclaimed king by Jehoiada, the priest. He is proclaimed king even as Athaliah is captured and executed in verses 12 through 16. Verse 20, after uh, Athaliah is destroyed and Jehoash begins to reign, we begin to see some good signs of what is to come. Chapter 11, verse 20 all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. There's peace. There's peace. And we have this seemingly, well, not seemingly, we have this divinely preserved son that is now on the throne, 
and he reigns in what seems is going to be a time of peace and a time of joy. We also see some problems that arise. And the problems that arise uh, begin in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His, mother name, his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all his days. Hey, good stuff. Thumbs up. He did what was right. Verse 3, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. And the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. That's idolatry. That's not good high places. It's not good sacrifices. So as good as Jehoash was and was going to be, and as peaceful as his reign was, and as good as we're going to see what he did, and he gets a good report, better than most of the kings we read about, right? He did what was right inside the Lord all his days, except all the high places weren't taken down, and the people were still worshiping these false gods there. In the remaining verses, we see what is the primary sign of Joash's reforms in Judah and that is the restoration and the repair to the temple. The restoration and repair of the temple had been torn down, neglected, mistreated, as the people chased after other gods, as the priests in the actual temple probably weren't doing their jobs, weren't cleaning, weren't sacrificing, they had fallen into disrepair. Joash comes in and repairs the temple. Now there's this interesting bit of leadership here that we could get into at a later point in time where he has his original plan is to give all the money to the priests and let the priests do the work of repairing the temple. But he keeps giving them money and he keeps seeing no repairs. And so he doesn't know what's happening to the money. Turns out the priests are just kind of keeping it, buying more sacrifices and doing what they're doing. But they're not actually doing their job in repairing the temple. So uh, Joash just kind of takes it over himself. Fine, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it. So Jehoash goes in firsthand serving the Lord by repairing the temple and uh, setting things right in the Lord's house. So at the end of this... We've seen good, we've seen bad, we've seen really bad, um, and now we see, well, maybe, maybe things are going to be okay. This guy seems to have done the right thing. He walked in the ways of the Lord. Sure, he didn't tear down the high places, but look, he's repairing the temple, and it's all coming together. Maybe, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one, and we'll pick up with that story next week. One thing we see here vividly displayed in all of these stories in this section is God's commitment to justice. God's commitment to justice. He will do what he says he's going to do, and he'll give sinners exactly what they deserve. No one gets injustice from God. No one gets injustice from God. The vilest sinner in hell, the most relatively righteous person in hell, so to speak, humanly speaking, righteous is still getting exactly what they deserve under the justice of God. It's a justice that he execute, executes on his own people and other nations. The whole point of this book, Yahweh is God over it all. He is the God over the Syrians. He's the God of Israel, the God of Judah. He's the God of all the nations and all the kings and all the universe. And he will repay evil in his time and in his way. Nevertheless, as we've been going through the passages time and time again, 
we see God's mercy and God's grace as he preserves a remnant in Judah because of his promise to David. How God's promises and God's word bind him to his own purposes because he will not violate his word. He has sworn by his name to do something and he's going to do it. That makes him faithful and trustworthy regardless of the faithlessness and the untrustworthiness of the people. Jehoiada, the priest that is raised up there at the time of Joash, takes the people through a covenant renewal ceremony. Things we see several times in the Old Testament. They fall away, they come back, and there's this covenant renewal with God. The covenant is always based on God's promises. The covenant is never a reminder to the people of what they promised. The covenant is never a reminder of the people to just simply try harder and do better. The promise of the covenant always comes under the words of God's promises, what God has done, taking his people out of slavery in Egypt, giving them a land, giving them a name, giving them a nation, giving them the blessings they have. And because of that, this covenant should be reflected in the people's repentance and their obedience and their faithfulness to him. The covenant is not based on their repentance or their faithfulness. It's based on God's. But that covenant should be reflected in the faithfulness and repentance and obedience of the people. And whether we're talking about judgment, salvation, promises, covenants, God's word is proven unbreakable. Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle will be erased from the law until it's all fulfilled. It's a short way of saying God's word cannot be broken. God's word will not return void. Back a couple weeks ago, we believe the Bible, we talked about the infallibility of scripture. It cannot fail to do what God sends it out to do. His promises will always be fulfilled in his time and his way according to his purpose. Apart from our faithfulness or our faithlessness, God will accomplish his word and his promises. But we're still left, I think, with that equation from earlier. If God gives each person what they deserve, and God is perfectly just, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're no less idolaters than them. We're no less wicked than Jezebel. We might not be wicked in the same ways, but Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if God is going to give us exactly what we deserve, we stand before him in judgment, what do we deserve from him except his justice, which is his condemnation? We deserve a guilty verdict, don't we? But the good news of the gospel is that God, in his time, will ultimately exercise his justice in Jesus Christ. Now I say this in two ways. From the Old Testament point of view, he will execute his judgment in Jesus Christ by sending him to die for sinners, taking the judgment of God on himself so that we can have forgiveness. And then from our point of view, he will send Jesus again to execute justice, this time not in himself. This time it will be on unbelievers. So we have this window, this time of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. You hear his voice, repent today, come to him today, while the mercy is there, while the grace is there. 
that the justice has been laid on Jesus and we can find forgiveness in him before justice comes for us and we have to bear it ourselves. Lastly, Jesus, our great high priest, brings us into covenant with God by his own righteousness. The king who we were waiting on, the priest who we were waiting on, the ultimate prophet we were waiting on comes in the person of the Lord Jesus. Perfect man from eternal God, right? The atonement for our sins who brings us victory through what he's done for us through his death and his resurrection. He renews the covenant between us and God and brings us into a right standing with God in a way that the priests could never do, in a way that these kings could never do, and in a way that these prophets could never do. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus, and that uh, in every page of your word that we read, whether it's here in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, we see Jesus, whether it's the stories of his life in the Gospels or the explanation of his ministry in the epistles, uh, his return in the book of Revelation, or whether we're seeing these shadows and these signs of him in the Old Covenant. God, help us to see him on every page and in every word and help us to turn to him time and again in repentance and faith, trusting him and what he has done for us. Help us to rely on his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, even as we seek to obey and be faithful to you with our lives. Help us to give you everything because you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.